Yeah, <laughs> please pick them up. No, uh, our, uh, our servants that want to partner with us love your children and uh, just make sure that if you're our guest that you introduce yourself and uh, we'd love to make sure uh, that we cared for your child in a way that was healthy but also in a way to meet their spiritual needs. And so we're in Mark chapter 3, that's page 838 in your pew Bible. And uh, as we're progressing through the Gospel of Mark, uh, where we come at this point in the story is, is kind of like what happened for us during our election season. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I watched a little bit of that on my phone, you know, uh, on the internet. I was kind of tracking with what was going on. Uh, I did, I thought one person uh, was certainly going to win the election as the, you know, the data was coming in. California still had to vote, you know, all that kind of stuff. But you kind of get this intel because there's, there's exit polls, right? How did you vote? Who do you think is going to win? And you start getting some of that information. And I remember waking up the next morning and going onto the website and uh, seeing who won and say, you know, I better check a different website. This is a conservative website. Maybe I'm not reading the headlines right. It's 4 a.m. You know, I haven't had my coffee yet. W what's going on? So I check a, a more liberal website. I'm like, no way. <laughs> I mean, based upon the, the exit polls, I, when I went to bed, there wasn't a chance, right? And uh, at this point in the Gospel of Mark, we are starting to kind of get some intel um, from these exit polls of people meeting Jesus, and we are surprised by people's reaction to him. As your pastor, I get to uh, meet with a ton of people throughout the week, and I pray that in doing that, I become a better preacher of God's word, how to be sympathetic, how to be a better listener, uh, how to care for you. And I had a delightful conversation just a couple weeks ago in which a, a lady who was struggling with just her role here at Faith Community, uh, there were some encouraging things. What she was struggling with was she caught a concept, and I, my heart was excited that she caught this concept. I'm sure all of you have caught it already, too. And that is, Josh, I know that this church wants to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, I know that there is an emphasis here on discipleship. And my heart started to kind of beat a little faster. I'm like, wow, I'm communicating. It's getting, you know, when I'm laying down, it's getting picked up. This is good. And then she said, but I don't have that spiritual gift. And I'm not sure if I can really fit here because I don't have the gift of discipleship. And it let me know that, you know, maybe uh, this excitement of what does it mean to be a disciple is still something that though we have been talking about this and showing it from God's word, that there is no such thing as a person who claims to be a Christian who is not a disciple, maybe that still hasn't quite connected. And so this person had been in services, perhaps attended Sunday school classes, but still thought with such a strong emphasis on discipleship, and I don't have that gift, what role do I have here? And this is a great passage, not only to see how people respond to Christ, but what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? Let's go ahead and look at Mark chapter 3. We're going to read verses 7 through 35. And see this morning, what is a true disciple of Jesus Christ? The Word of God says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and in Jumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, 
they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he had desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. They might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name, help me out, <laughs> thank you, uh, that is sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now just notice how Mark does this. The family's mentioned there, kind of a sandwich technique. Then we have a different story, and then he wraps up with the family, and Mark does that to say, even though these things seem disconnected, it's actually one and the same. What the family is saying might be very similar to what the scribes are saying. That's what you should be thinking now. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of, e of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Thanks be to God for his word. We're going to see different people react to who Christ is, but in terms of what does this mean about discipleship, and hopefully it will clarify. Uh, I hope this lady is able to hear this uh, as well and know what a disciple is, but we're going to begin with saying, first of all, in verses 7 through 9, a disciple is more than a fan. A disciple is more than a fan. We see Jesus in verse 7 having to withdraw from the crowd, but they follow him like TMZ would follow Brad Pitt. Okay, or People Magazine. This is the paparazzi. Jesus was and has celebrity status at this point. And crowds are coming, all of those geographical areas, we know that crowds are now coming from over 100 miles to see Jesus. 
that's impressive, okay? And they seem to have a magical view of him. They seem to want more what he does than who he is or what he has to say. Look with me at verse 8. Mark kind of gives us a little bit of a hint. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, right? They want to get near Jesus. When we want to get next to a celebrity, we might be able to take our picture with them and say, I met Tom Brady. But guess what? When you get to meet Jesus and you get that close to him, he might heal you. You think you want to get close to that guy? I mean, that is a low difference than just getting a picture saying, I met so-and-so. Christ could actually heal your disease. And we see that the crowd is so large in verse 10. For he had healed many diseases that all the diseases pressed around him to touch him. He had to get in a boat. I'm talking about an enormous multitude. There is chaos. They are in danger. The crowd is pressing around him. But here's the catch. Fans want their fix without the cost. Fans want their fix without the cost. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not close enough that Jesus can actually require anything of being a fan in an American church in the United States is easy. I just want to make it super clear because Mark makes it super clear. We want fans of Jesus to be here at church. I want to let you know I want fans of Jesus to be here at church. You don't have to come with straight A report card. You don't have to come with your life together. We welcome anyone even if you just want to get around and be a part of the pressing in. But may this be a church where you hear consistently, Christ came to make disciples, right? Christ told us in Matthew 28, go into the world and make great crowds. Is that what he said? Go into all the world and make great decisions. No, what does he say? Go into all the nations and make disciples. Make disciples. A disciple is more than a fan. Following Jesus has to cost you something. So this morning, do you have some skin in the game? Are you a fan or are you a follower? The crowds are pressing around him, but check this out in verse 11 and 12. The crowds press around him, but the demons confess him. Look at verse 11 and 12. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make them known. So far in the Gospel of Mark, there are only two people that get Christ's identity right. God the Father, the baptism, heavens get ripped open, and what does God the Father say? This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Got the identity right. Only other people so far are now these evil beings, these wrong beings, actually have something right to say about Jesus. They rightly identify him. Where the crowds are falling upon him, the demons are falling before him. But here's the question, church. Is it worship? They know. James 2.19 tells us even the demons believe and shudder. The demons know who Christ is, but they're not disciples. Why? They have a dread of him, but they don't have a love for him. They have a head knowledge, we would say, right? But they don't have a heart knowledge. 
Here's the principle. All confessions need submission. A disciple is more than a confession. That's the second point. A disciple is more than a fan. A disciple is more than a confession. Christ said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Here's the part I want to emphasize now. Teaching them what? To observe all that I have commanded you. Obedience is essential to knowing Jesus. Confession is an element of belief, but it can't stop there. There is an obedience. He's looking for more than words of belief. He's looking for a life in which those words are lived out. Amen? So church, would we be a community that is more than just a people that confess a name? Pat and I wrestled this week intellectually with, could we say the demons worshipped here? The crowds fall upon him. And the demons fall before him. And that was kind of like, okay, I like that. I like that. I thought, the crowds press him, but the demons worship him. And it was like, you know what? They hit the right note. They, they, they say the right thing, but yet you go, oh, that kind of makes me shudder. It's not completely there. Because there's no submission. There's no obedience. There's no, I want to give my life to him. And so in case someone has ever forgotten to tell you what it really means to be a Christian, let me be clear. There's no forgiveness without repentance. There's no salvation without surrender. There's no believing without committing. Have you made a confession? Or have you made a commitment to follow Jesus? A disciple is more than a confession. Another wrong response is found in these religious leaders. In verses uh, 22... Uh, through 30, we see these religious leaders, and they're coming down from Jerusalem. Look at me at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. They come down from Jerusalem. It's just kind of like they did, we go down from Denver, Mile High Stadium. It's an altitude shift, okay? So coming down just means that they had to descend to get to where Christ was, and they have some names to call. They say that Christ is Beelzebul, and we've tried to say throughout this whole sermon series, we're going to assume nothing. So what is Beelzebul? It is how the Gospels refer to Satan. It, it probably is based off of an old Canaanite god known as Lord of the High Place, but in First, uh, first Kings, it's used again in first King, or, sorry, Second Kings chapter 1, and Israel says, no longer Beelzebul. Israel calls them Beelzebub. Not Lord of the high place, but Lord of the flies. Kind of a pun on their false god's name. Your god isn't Lord of the high place, that's our god. Your god is Beelzebub, Lord of the flies. And that's what they're calling Christ here. Now before we get into Christ's awesome logical response, which I love, let's notice what they're not arguing about. What are they not arguing about? The scribes are not disputing the miracle. Did Christ cast out demons? Yes. They're not arguing that. What they are contesting is the identity of Jesus. And by whose power? How is he doing these things? I love how Mark includes it for us here in verse 22. We see first they're attacking his identity. He is possessed by Beelzebul. 
Second, in that word, and by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. They're attacking his identity, and they're attacking the power in which he does it by. That, that gives us the hint there. And so Christ is going to object. But before we see how Christ responds to this inaccurate statement, I just want you to know one quick bit of application. Faith is not the automatic response to evidence. Don't think, and I've met with people, loved ones here, that say, if my loved one just saw a miracle, then they'd believe. Guess what the scribes have seen? They've seen a miracle. They've seen people cast out demons. Seeing is not believing. In fact, here, seeing the evidence actually might make you worse off. You've tasted a little bit, you've seen a little bit, but then you say, nope, I'm going to rationalize this away. What I'm seeing is true, but the way he did that and who he is that did that, he is of Satan himself, and he's casting out demons by Satan's power. And so the scribes and the Pharisees last week, they objected about the Sabbath. Maybe they had some good conscientious reasons why that was work in the Sabbath. But this week, they are without excuse. They are seeing a man, Christ, do something good and then saying he's doing it by the power of the evil one. There's no more excuse. John tells us they love darkness rather than light. That's the bottom line. And so when we see evidences of faith, and we think, oh, they would just believe if they saw that. They would just believe if they came to that church and heard that. They, they would just believe if they just saw someone. No. Nope. We're going to see what a disciple is someone who is called later. But here, faith and evidence don't always go together. So now in verses 23 through 27, Christ appeals to some basic logic. Look with me at 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? And here's his parable. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. There's no future for a kingdom. There's no future for a house if it's divided from within. We live that out, right? Moms and dads, husbands and wives, spouses. A kingdom, a house, if it is divided, it is not going to stand. What sense does it make for Satan to be casting out Satan? If Satan's battling himself, his kingdom is surely going to crumble. But here's the good news, folks. Satan's kingdom is crumbling, but it's not from a civil war from within. It is from King Jesus doing an onslaught batter from without. He is saying, I am the strong man who can come in there and bind this man in his house, and I can rob him of all of his goods. There, there is hope for you this morning. We know that sin has a power over us. Anybody here ever wake up in the morning and say, I'm not going to do that anymore? And then what? Within minutes, hours later, you are doing what? The same thing that you said you weren't going to do. Sin has a power over us. But look and see what Christ says he is. He is an adversary to Satan, not an ally to Satan. Everything that Christ did is to oppose him, and he is the strong man. Look in verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. 
Friends, I just want to rejoice with you. Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 2. Let's think about all that Christ has done so far, all that we have learned with this picture that Christ has come as a strong man and he has bound that man up so that he can release captives. Christ has come declaring the kingdom of God and in power. And what has he done? He has healed every disease and sickness which man brought on by sin. Amen? He is opposing Satan's kingdom where Satan wants death. Christ is bringing life. Amen? Then he has the power to cast out demons. And not just cast them out, he can rebuke them to be silent. We're going to cover that later in Mark. Why does Christ want to stay silent? But he rebukes them the same way that he rebukes the wind and the waves. Same word. Stills them. They surrender. This Christ can forgive sin. Mark chapter 2. What authority. Something that Satan would not want to do, nor can he do. But our Savior forgives sins. And then he comes teaching. And all through Mark chapter 1 and 2, people say, what authority does this man have? And look with me for the very first time in Mark. Mark verse 28, Christ says what? Truly I say to you. Truly I say to you. How astonishing that Christ walks in with what he says and not what was said by others. He doesn't say thus says the Lord. He says amen I say to you. He is claiming what? He's claiming deity. He's claiming, I am God. Only God can cast out demons. Only God can heal diseases. Only God can forgive sins. And only God can say, I say to you. I don't have to quote. I don't have footnotes in my sermon, Jesus said, right? That's the authority that he has. And the Pharisees knew exactly what he was doing. And so now we encounter the most difficult part of this whole sermon. It has brought anguish upon many a Christians. The unpardonable sin. Have I done it? Did I say it? Am I guilty of it? Before we hear the warning of the unpardonable sin, that gets all the attention. But as good Bible students, what do we do? We read the whole verse. We read the whole context. So let's look at 28. Truly I say to you, here's the promise before the warning. Can I get an amen? All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. Amen? Amen. Please hear, no matter how severe the sin, God can forgive. There is not a particular sin. There is also not a particular amount of sin. Oh, if I did that one, or to that degree, Christ says here, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter. We even know blaspheming is forgiven because Paul says what? In 1 Timothy, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church. I was a murderer. All sins. What a claim. What a savior. So what about this warning? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Here's the good news as Bible students. Mark gives us a commentary. We don't need another commentary. We got Mark. What does he say it is in verse 30? But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, verse 29, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. What is that sin? What, why is he talking about this? For, what does that word mean? Reason, connect. 
For they were saying, so what is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? They were saying he has an unclean spirit. They were attributing to Satan the good works of Jesus Christ. Now there is tons of debate. I've read pastors that say that if you disagree with your pastor, you are guilty of the unpardonable sin. Very convenient. <laughs> Friends, you are not guilty of the unpardonable sin if you disagree with me. May you never hear that here. May our, you know how much authority a pastor has? None. All based upon what? The word of God. The word of God is the authority in our life. Others, here's my opinion about it. Because it is attributing the works of Christ to the work of the devil, I believe that this sin could only be done then. I believe that this sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit could only be done while Christ was present. Okay, It is saying that, that that what Christ is doing, he's doing it in the power of Satan. I don't know if we can look around at anybody else and say, I know for sure that that person is doing it in the Spirit. Christ is deity, he's doing the work, I think it's reserved personally for that specific time. I don't believe, but let's make the principle a little bit larger just in case. Other good commentators, John MacArthur, etc., they say this. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a particular act or particular utterance, as if you were to say some exact words, but it's a disposition of the will. Most commentators say that it's a disposition of the will, and this is what they mean. When you are so opposed to Jesus that you claim the work that he is doing by the spirit of the living God is actually by the devil himself, you are putting yourself in a place of unbelief. And the only sin that can't be forgiven is unbelief. So the only means of salvation is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ by the drawing of the Holy Spirit. And if you cut yourself off, from the means of the Holy Spirit and repentance and faith, and you say that Christ is doing his work in the power of Satan, you are cutting yourself off from the only means of salvation. Therefore, you are committing a sin that's unforgivable because you're saying, I don't believe that. I am so hardened. It's a disposition of the will. Here's what William Hendrickson writes. It's a little more clear. Their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, an adulterer, a murderer, there is hope. The message of the gospel may cause a person to cry out, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But when a man has become hardened so that he has made up his mind not to pay any attention to the Spirit, he has placed himself on a road that leads to perdition. So here's the warning. Church, be careful of spiritual frostbite in your life. Your extremities get cold first. Winter is coming. Pat just got his wood stacked. Looks beautiful. Eric Steinhauser spent a whole day loading wood. People are getting ready for winter. But your extremities get cold first. Your hands get cold. And it's telling your body what? Do something. <laughs> okay? You feel at first the chill, then the tingle, then the numbing and the throbbing. Your hands begin to change colors. If you're a kid or an adult, your mom says, get inside. Your friends say, put on some gloves. 
you might even witness others going inside and warming them by themselves by the fire. You might even try a glove on. Huh, that's what a glove is. Take it off. And you look at those people and you say, gloves are for the weak. We have men that go as long as possible with shorts in our congregation. <laughs> and I want to ask them, who are you trying to impress? Add some legs to those shorts. Be warmed. It's freezing. And maybe you are here thinking, oh, those church people, they're so gullible. They believe in Jesus. But be warned. Warned. There will come a time when you are out for so long that you will not feel the cold anymore. Your hands will turn purple. The ends of the fingers will turn black. And this lack of feeling is not a sign of health, but a sign of death to your extremities. And church, the most dangerous place to be is to be in the church, putting the glove on, taking it off, seeing the power of God to transform lives, hearing the written word of God, and saying, I'll repent tomorrow. You don't know that you can stay out in the cold one more day without getting frostbite. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. It doesn't say tomorrow. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Beware of spiritual frostbite in your life. Don't assume that you can repent later. And so Mark pushes for your response. Will you respond with blasphemy or will you respond as a disciple of Christ. Matthew chapter 12, picking up the same story, says this, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather, gather with me scatters. There's no neutrality when it comes to who Christ is. Either you blaspheme him or you surrender. Our, first, our fourth point, a disciple is more than an affectionate feeling for Jesus. A disciple is more than an affectionate feeling for Jesus. Our third one, in case you missed it, because I don't think I said it, disciple is more than a religious tradition. Disciple is more than a religious tradition. Disciple is more than an affectionate feeling for Jesus. We're going to talk about his family now in verses 20 through 21. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Being a disciple is more than being a family member and having affectionate feelings for Jesus. These are people that spent 30 years with Christ, that some could argue would know him the best, and yet they don't understand who he is. Now, in this, we don't have to think they're doing something sinister. They're not necessarily doing something evil here. They may love him so much that they want to protect the family name. But they were wrong about him. Our Catholic friends, Mary's included, Mary was wrong about Jesus here. She doesn't get it right. She wants to seize him and bring him in. The Pharisees thought that he was demonic. His family thinks that he's deluded. C.S. Lewis said he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. His family thinks he's out of his mind. He is, New England, out of his tree. He is standing outside of himself. And you can imagine the embarrassment as a family. 
the oldest son thinks he's God. You know, he's taking this God thing way too far. We don't respond well to zeal when it comes to religion, do we? Can I have a conversation I've had in this church about discipleship, and where I often get pushback is, Josh, you're way too zealous. You know, we can handle zeal when it comes to athletes practicing, musicians, her craft, scientists for the cure, a businessman for his business, a soldier in battle, a craftsman in our church working at his tool bench. But when it comes to zeal of religion, we say that person's a lunatic, a single-minded, wholehearted Christian. Oh, wow, he's a fanatic. You've gone too far. He's taken this God thing a little too much. Small groups, discipleship, one-on-one, accountability, growth. (gasps) It's striking how genuine affection isn't enough. I don't know what Jesus you met when you were five, but genuine affection for him, the yay Jesus from snow camp, this family was certainly affectionate towards him. They loved him, but they were wrong. They thought the most sane man in the world was insane. Just think about that. They may have been his family, but they are forever on the page of scripture as an example of how not to respond to Jesus. So what is a disciple? More than a fan? More than affectionate feelings towards him? More than religious traditions? A disciple is someone who answers the call of the sovereign Lord Jesus. Look with me at verses 13 through 19. 13 through 19 and then verse 35. This is the middle section. And listen to how a disciple is someone who answers the call. And he went up on the mountain... What should that make you think of? What are some famous mountains? Exodus. Went up to a famous mountain. Next thing you know, there's 12 guys. What's that make you think of? Where did Israel become a nation? After Moses went on a mountain and there was 12 tribes of Israel. And then he renames people. What does that make you think of? Who names people in the very beginning of the Bible? God does through Adam, names people. Adam names animals, and he is renaming people. Did you notice that as he says in verse 13, he went up on a mountain and he called to him, here's the next key phrase, those whom he desired. It's a sovereign call of the Lord. Not a single disciple said, pick me. I volunteer. He does the calling, and he calls people from every background. I haven't done any empirical research, but there are some famous people here and there's people we don't know anything about. I think there's a lot more Peters in this world than there are Thaddeuses. What do you think? Do you know anything about Thaddeus? Church history is full of what Thaddeus might have done, but you know what? We know a whole lot more about about, about Peter. Don't live for being known. There are those guys that are known here and those guys that seem insignificant, but they change the world. Who cares how many friends you have on Facebook and who follows your Twitter account? Don't embrace, I want the world to know me. God can still use you, even if you struggle with significance. God uses you. Even if you're here in a corner of the world in Loudoun, New Hampshire, God wants to work through you. And guess what? What holds them together are not their preferences. Church, we need to hear that. 
we have a guy who's a zealot for the nation, and we have Matthew, who's a tax collector for Rome, who's Jewish. Their political persuasions, does that unite them? No. Their preferences in church, does that unite them? No. It's Christ that unites them, and he brings them together. He'll take the obnoxious and the loud. We have some of those. He'll also take the prim and the proper. We have some of those. And guess what? Jesus is saying here, I'll disciple anyone. I'll disciple anyone. Not only is he willing, but hear this, he's calling. He's calling you this morning. Would you come follow me? And notice the purpose that he gives you when he calls you. Verse 14, and he appointed the 12, whom he also named apostles. Why? Good Bible students, why? What's the next two words? So that they might what? What's the first thing he wants you to do? Be with him. What intimacy. He wants you to be with him. Disciples aren't about what you can do for God. It's about coming and being with God. He's a God of community. We have the I life, and God says, come and be a part of the we life. Come, come be with me. And that's going to be a lot harder than you think. So come and learn life-on-life life discipleship with God, that he might do what? Send them out to preach verbal and have the authority to cast out demons, behavioral, word and deed. God calls you. You are immensely valuable, and he calls you to be with him, and then he gives you a purpose. The purpose is that you would have a verbal witness and a behavioral witness. That word and deed would go together and would be two wings of the airplane to get you off the ground. You need them both. There are Christians that want to emphasize word. I just preach the word to people. Great. That is what the gospel is. It is good news. It needs to be shared. You cannot say, I'm going to share the gospel and use words if necessary. That, that's impossible. You have to use words. But when you are communicating and your actions are saying something different, what do we trust? Actions. You are speaking so loudly through your actions, I can't hear what you're actually saying. And so words and deeds need to go together. Amen? John Stott says it better than I could. Jesus' words and deeds belong to each other. The words interpreting the deeds and the deeds embodying the words. He did not only announce the good news of the kingdom, he performed visible signs of the kingdom. We want to speak with a distinctly Christian voice and live out a distinctly Christian conviction. And so he says, follow me. Life on life discipleship turns into life on life missional discipleship because he gives them on the job training. He sends them out. So the Herodians and the Pharisees, they despise him. The demons recognize him. The crowds marvel at him. His family thinks that he's mad. But the disciples are the ones that follow him. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. This morning, Jesus is calling you to follow him. Will you? There's no more important call than a call from a significant other. Not a call from a job employer saying you got the job. Not even a calling in your life, college students that are back home. We're glad that you're here. It is the call of the Lord, of the Lord upon your life. And he opens that call to anyone. We're going to end with verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. 
the door is left open for anyone to join his family. If you're here and you don't have a family, if you're here and you're single, if you're here and you're destitute, if you're here and you don't have a single place to call home, Christ says, guess what? You didn't choose your family, but you get to choose this family. Will you answer his call? It's a lot more difficult than you might think. Mark ends the list of 12 disciples, letting you as a reader know something that nobody else gets to know, that Judas will betray him. The crowds want to press on him. The Pharisees want to kill him. But one from his own ranks can't follow the demands of Christ and betrays him. Which challenges us not to put too much confidence in man, not to put too much confidence in me, your pastor, but to also get around other disciples to help you keep pursuing Christ. So if you're here this morning and you've answered the call of discipleship, now I want you to think of, name a couple of people that you want to see perfected and transformed on the last day. Right now, think of a couple of names. Then I want to ask you, what are you doing in word and in deed now to make sure that they can be there on the last day then? Will you answer his call? Will you go? There's no such thing as a Christian who is not a disciple. Here, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Being a disciple means Jesus owns you. Does that ruffle your feathers? Does that sound too possessive? I just want some of your time, some of your money, some of your relationship. Jesus says, I want you. I own you. You can't call Jesus Lord without declaring yourself to be his slave. Let's pray. God, we want to lift your name high.